I think like in all the years I've been doing this, one of the great casting experiences I've ever had. I just love that cast so much. I feel like Francine and us and Jesse, I feel like we just hit each of those roles perfectly and everyone's grown into it so nicely. Um, and then we went to New York and did pre-production and right dab in the middle of that, Donald Trump got elected and we suddenly realized our clearly relevant show was now extremely relevant with uh, Donald Trump uh, pushing his kids into positions of power with no real experience and kind of vague titles. And so this whole idea of inherited wealth, dynastic wealth, and then obviously the Fox News part of it and big media and all of that stuff started ringing even more uh, relevant than we had initially thought. Uh, probably uh, a shocking uh, amount. Uh, at first we were all a little shell-shocked uh, because the whole world changed when that election happened. But then there was a moment where we said, thank God we get to make this show, which at least relates to that. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense, especially given Kendall's arc over the course of season one. Like, I mean, not that he's really a pitiable figure, but some of the most interesting coverage I've read about the Trump family has been like profiles of Donald Trump Jr. Which, because he just seems, he seems like a really happy guy who's had a really, you know, emotionally healthy life. Um, which is to say not at all. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but like, I mean, yeah, I feel like, because I think a lot of people coming into it were thinking just stri straight down the middle Murdoch, but it is like a bigger picture portrait than, than that. Jesse did a great job of that because we all felt like if you just do thinly disguised Murdoch, it almost becomes a trick. Mm -hmm. And we wanted it to be a bigger statement than that. So the Redstones, their family dramas are well chronicled. You go back to the Maxwells, over in England, the guy who died mysteriously on a boat who turned out to be a Mossad agent who ran a media empire that turned out to kind of be a Ponzi scheme. You can link to other industries. Clearly, Trump is real estate. And, you know, I mean, we're living in this time of just insane wealth explosion for the top 0.1%. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just felt like Jesse got into the pocket with that. And uh, everything he was writing was not only funny, but just felt really well-observed and, and very plausible. Well, talk about kind of inheriting that as a, as a director, because one of the big, you know, tasks of a director in the pilot is setting a tone for the series and, um, you know, kind of mapping out a, um, a structure to it in a way so that people know what to expect from episodes to come. And you just talked about how, you know, you get that monkey wrench thrown in with Trump being elected, which is kind of a tonal shift for the country. And you're already dealing with a show that has kind of a tricky tonal balance in terms of balancing the comedy with the drama. Um, how did you approach that? Like, what was your kind of guiding star, if you will, when you stepped in? I mean, that was the question. I mean, you're looking at the script, and the darks are full dark, and the brights are full bright. I mean, when it's funny, it's really funny. When it's dark, it's really dark. So I always just look, you know, I mean, one of the great things about having thousands and thousands of movies and TV shows is you can look at other stuff that is like vaguely like what you're doing. And a big guy I kept coming back to was Neil LeBute, his mm -hmm. early stuff, uh, Friends and Neighbors, uh, In the Company of Men. Some of the darkest comedies, I think to this day, I've ever seen in my entire life. I mean, Man Bites Dog, I might throw in there. There's mm -hmm. maybe a couple others. But those movies were very uh, instructive because what LeBute did with those, especially Friends and Neighbors, it shot really well. And there's a warmth to the way it's shot, yet Jason Patrick's character in it is a straight-up sociopath. I mean, one of the scariest characters I've ever seen in a movie. 
And then my DP and I, Andres uh, Parekh, very talented guy, he and I also watched Foxcatcher, which oh, I, right. yeah. I consider like a modern-day masterpiece. If I had to explain to someone what happened to America, I would just say, just watch Foxcatcher. Interesting. Yeah. Worship that movie. So through all of this and looking at tones, we came up with the idea of like you have to do it on film because you need the warmth of the film. And you need to have those subconscious flaws that, that film gives you because if this show gets too cold, you're already living in penthouses and offices with a view. You're already in limos. You're already in this rarefied, bizarre world, private planes. And there's a real danger, and especially because we're, we're riding that line with really, I guess on the surface, you would say unlikable characters. Uh, and it's important to highlight that they're actually damaged and they have flaws. So all of that pointed us towards this kind of uh, neoclassical kind of film look where we're going to do rich film, beautiful films. You can feel that warmth. And a lot of times frame proscenium, but sometimes go more handheld to give the office stuff the proper tension uh, to reflect what's going on with the characters. And then the other key, well, two other key ingredients, also improvise. Uh, even if you're not gonna use it, just to make, to bring a, the improv's great, not just for getting laughs or clever dialogue, but what it does is it, it just makes the dialogue feel super real. So like we do a whole family dinner scene in that pilot that's right. all improvised. I just told them, hey, you guys talk about this, you talk about this. And I told all the actors you can improvise, which has continued through all the other episodes they've done. They know they have that green light. And that really gave a humanity to what was going on. And then the final key ingredient was Nick Nicholas Bertel's score, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, which, once again, he did a great job of combining this kind of classical music score, but with an underlying like hip-hop beat, which is perfect. It's like the blend of coldness and a damaged family with like wealth porn you know that that kind of strange <laughs> mixture and and i was really proud when we finished the show that there was a couple articles written about how we did a great job of not looking making this type of wealth look attractive mm. that it actually felt like something really depressing and screwed up and that was our goal um so yeah there was a lot of a lot of tone stuff that we were constantly acknowledging. We were also seeing that we were in a new world. I mean, we would walk out on the streets and like you would have to remind yourself, Donald Trump is the president of the United States. So it, it, it really felt like screw the regular rules of genre and tone and let's 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 blur these a little bit more. Yeah. Well, in terms of, of, of kind of that improv aspect of it, I mean, one of the things that people talk about a lot in television is is you know the speed at which you have to shoot things and the speed at which you have to kind of go through everything and building that time in to make sure that you have what's scripted as well as give the actors opportunities to explore things on their own you know that's kind of tricky so like how do you go about approaching that as a director in terms of making sure that they feel comfortable that they have the time that you have the time as a production and that you can capture the things that you're going for when they do get the opportunity to improv you know, I think it's all about picking your moments with television, because certainly with film, you have that luxury a lot more. Not to say with film, you don't get behind the clock, but from talking to my AD, Amy Lauritsen, and from talking to our great line producers, and and obviously the DP, we were 
able to pick certain key scenes where I was like, I want this one to go super loose. Like, I think we need some looseness here. So when you schedule this, give us an extra half an hour here. Give us an extra half an hour here. And then I move pretty fast. I mean, especially when you have really good actors like this. You know, the truth is, by the second or third take, we were getting it pretty much with these guys almost all the time. And when you're moving like that, and then Andres, my DP, was like artful but fast. And we were working with two cameras, which is key for this kind of stuff. Not for every single shot, but for a lot of them. And just by making a conscious effort to say we need some of this improv, we need some of this sauce in the show... Uh, we were able to get it. And then there were plenty of other times where we're like, no, no, we don't have time. we got to go. Like, come on, we're losing the light. Let's move, let's move. Um, but also the actors knew, like, even on the first or second take, if they really wanted to try something, it wasn't going to bother me. I mean, I'm never going to get mad or upset about someone trying something. So, good. yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, in terms of the cast, I mean, not to make you pick favorites, but who surprised you as improv- improvisers the most? Well, we knew uh, we knew cousin Greg Nick Braun was going to be good because he was funny in the audition, and we knew Kieran Culkin was going to be good because he was funny on tape. Mm-hmm. We weren't even in the room with him, and he was already funny. So there's certain people you knew coming into it, and I'd worked with Jeremy Strong before, mm-hmm. so we kind of knew Jeremy Strong was going to be the emotional base of the show in a lot of ways. I think the biggest surprise was Matthew McFadden. Oh, um, wonderful. I knew he was good. I'd seen his work. I knew he could be funny. And then he was even better than that. And then that, just right away, that funny thing between him and Braun, where they just gravitated towards each other. And every day we were doing stuff with them where we had to, like, I had to make myself move on because they were making me laugh so hard. <laughs> See, that, that makes perfect sense because, again, like that's something that's evolved over the course of the first season. There's been such a passionate fandom behind Greg and Tom's relationship and also just trying to figure out kind of the, the core of it. And yet a lot of it's in that first exchange they have in the pilot yep. when he's like, would you kiss me? Would you do it? And Greg kind of looking at him like, is he serious? Is this a real request? And the audience is thinking the same thing. And I don't know. I just, I mean, to... to see that happen so early in a series and then watch it develop from that was was fascinating. I gotta give Jesse credit on that moment though where you kiss me even though we improvised around what Jesse wrote he had that in the script and it was one of my favorite moments and in that exact moment you realize like oh uh, Tom is the lowest status in the family but finally he's found someone lower <laughs> and really that status game is just continue to continue but, but it even goes beyond that both those actors are really funny man I mean they crack me up and they always play it super real they never go out of that circle of getting too schmaltzy with it or pushing mm-hmm. the comedy it's always super real um, but they're a bunch of funny people I mean uh Sarah Snook is like a hilarious man. She's also bitingly funny. And uh, everyone's kind of got their character down so much now that it's just a pleasure. I'm already watching cuts of the second season. It's just a joy. Well, I wanted to ask about that part of it, too, because, uh, I mean, the the Greg and Tom relationship is its own kind of beast, but also Tom's relationship with with Sarah Snook's character. Like, their their marriage, their proposal, their, their whole thing... It's hard to get a bead on, you know, how much of this is true love, how much of this is, you know, tied into the business, how much of this is opportunity, how much of this is, you know, fear. And I mean, a lot of that plays into a lot of relationships, sure. But when you're shooting that in the pilot, like when you're when you're bringing us this relationship from the start, 
how did you approach it? Like in your mind, was it was it written in the script like these two are you know relying on each other? These two are in a business relationship. These two are truly in love. Like did it? Did you have kind of perception of their relationship that early on? Well, the very first scene where you meet them is Tom agonizing over what birthday gift to buy uh, Logan, right. the father, the patriarch, and that told me everything. I told all of us everything we needed to know because. All the other kids know it's ridiculous, don't even worry about it, but he couldn't let it go. And then it's just, once again, it's having a really good actress just as such makes life so easy because then we, we went to the birthday party and Matthew McFadden improvised this kind of dorky laugh off Logan insulting Tom. And I felt like that one laugh, I remember when it happened, I was like, circle that take. Like that laugh was it. We were off to the races off that laugh. Um, as far as their relationship, I just once again, off those two scenes, I always figured that Shiv, uh, Sarah's character in the, in the show, wanted the opposite of her father, wanted someone who wasn't uh, Kronos eating his children. You know, he wanted, she wanted someone with, who wasn't a game player, and she kind of loved the fact that Tom approaches you almost with two empty hands. He holds his hands up when he comes towards you, there's nothing behind his back, there's no trickiness, he's just not good enough at it. He wants to do it, but he's just not good enough. And I think she really loved that. I think she loved how dorky and open and honest that was. But I think what you're watching now in the later episodes is that the hook for that those power games is so deep with his children that she can't resist it, and now she's starting to look at it as a weakness. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my theory on it. I, I would love to hear Sarah uh, and Matthew talk about their theory on the relationship because I'm sure it goes three levels deeper. Mm-hmm. But that was always kind of my take on them. No, that's great. And it, it definitely seems to shift almost episode by episode and conversation by conversation. Like each situation they get put in, you can kind of read a different angle into you know how they're hooked into each other. It's just uh, And it's fascinating to see that develop throughout the whole show because oh. there's so many moments like that where... You want to say, oh, I figured it out. I know exactly how this is operating. And then there's other layers to it that you get to delve into. So. The open relationship just kills me. No, asking God, for yeah. the open uh, relationship. Yeah. And I, I'll give one spoiler alert for the second, or spoiler for the uh, second season is his uncertainty about the open relationship continues into the second season. <laughs> he just can't get his head around hey, what it, it means. It like, never felt like he was going to feel secure in it. It never felt like there was going to be a moment where Tom was like, oh, okay, yeah, sure, everything's fine. I feel very comfortable, I can relax. Every time he sees her, he, you can tell he's thinking, did she sleep with someone? Am I supposed to be sleeping with someone? Is this okay? Is this freaky? Why do I feel crappy? Like, oh, so funny. And by the way, when you talked about being able to cast, like, not go for the name, cast, like, the best actor, uh, Sarah Snook was immediately who I thought of bringing up just oh. because, I mean, I, I saw her in that uh, Ethan Hawke indie, indie movie, like, which is basically just a two-hander between her and Ethan Hawke. I forget what it's called. It's like Transference or Trans... Yeah, it's like, oh, I haven't seen that. Oh, it's, um, it's amazing. It's this really naughty little time travel movie. And she's... And it's one of those things where you watch it and you're like, this actress is amazing. Somebody figure out what's somebody let, you know find her and put her in things and it took a couple of years but it's been great to see her like get the standout role. I mean you know Francine Maisler is one of the great casting directors. There's there's a few of them out there. Allison Jones is right up there. You mm-hmm. just when these types of casting directors go put all their chips on one actor, 
they're almost never wrong. And that's basically what Francine said. She just said, this is a special actor. This We're going to be hearing her name for years and years. You have to do this. Get them to fly her in from Australia. Get her in the room. And she walked in and we were like, oh, you're 100% right. This is clearly an extremely skilled actor. And, and thank God for that role, too, because she's just so formidable the way Sarah plays it. And if that wasn't the case, there'd be a hole in the show. But she more than holds up that end. Yeah. And she's got a really sly sense of humor, too. The way she tortures Tom without ever winking just kills me every single scene. <laughs> It's heartbreaking. It's a heartbreaking show at a lot of moments. Um, yeah. She also can do all of Miseducation of uh, Lauryn Hill, <laughs> that album. I, we were at a karaoke when we were filming, and they had that on the karaoke, and she, like, word for word, perfect, pitch perfect, can do the whole album. It's one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. Wow. I, hope, I hope someone circles this who has the opportunity to make her do that in front of more people. So that we <laughs> yeah. Can all kind of enjoy that performance. I mean, that's... that's that's an FYC event right there. It's right, just yeah. like <laughs> that's the way to close it out. That would that would bring down the house. Yeah, it's absolutely. Like Maya Rudolph singing Prince. I don't know if you've ever heard her. Sing. Oh, I, 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 yeah. her cover band sounds amazing. Oh my god, she just nails Prince. Yeah, her singing anything is pretty great. By yes. the way, agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, well, in terms of in terms of season one, um, I feel like one of the narratives that got built around it was the reception of the rollout. It was like people slowly caught up with it as new episodes kept coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, and as somebody who's you know pretty active on Twitter, who you know makes yourself available for interviews like this, um, how eager are you to kind of talk about the specific beats and how things change and how people interpret the series uh, versus you know just sitting back and watching different takes come in and seeing the different analyses like pour out of people because there's there's a lot of you know disparity out there in terms of how succession is perceived. We knew we were going to get that. I mean, one of the great things about this era that we're in where you can do all the you know these shows where stations like uh, HBO or cable stations like HBO and streaming and all this stuff they'll take big risks with shows we took full advantage of it we knew we were starting with characters where the the hook wasn't immediately you know identifiable and we also talked about how it'll be so much more satisfying once you link into them through their faults and through their vulnerabilities So we kind of knew because when we were watching the episodes, it played like a crazy ramp where you get into this world and then sure enough, we had some reviews that were like, wow, I don't like anyone in this group. Why would I care about this? And so I don't say anything to that. I never like, everyone has a right to like not like something, to have a different interpretation. So I try never to comment on that on Twitter. Except when they're wrong. Except Well, (laughs) what I will correct is factual inaccuracies. Like it, it did drive me a little crazy on Vice that there were these sites fact-checking our movie that were incorrect with their fact-checks. Right. So I felt like I had to come in and go, no, that's actually not true. Check the source here. I think one time I bit on someone slagging on the movie where I went like, screw you! And I deleted it immediately. I was like, oh, don't do that. Don't do that. So with uh, Succession, no. I never got into any of that, but I just really, with this, it was a great experience because I got to direct the pilot, I got to be a producer, I'm a producer on it. Mm-hmm. So it allows you to take one step closer to also being a fan of it. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, Jesse is right in the trenches every single day with that incredible writing staff and that cast. I am able to like look at the cuts, to watch the arc of the season, to enjoy it a little bit more. And pretty quickly I was like, oh, this is one of my favorite shows I've ever seen. So. 
when people would slag on it early on, I didn't really care. I was just like, you're lost. Like, it's, it's pretty awesome. But, um, but then eventually, I think someone wrote a review where they took back their negative review, which you almost never see that. What was it? I want to say New York Magazine, but I could be wrong. Yeah, it might have been. Yeah, I remember what you're talking about, but I can't remember the specific. I thing. can't remember. Uh, uh, I think, but it was, it was definitely a reevaluation where they were like, "Hold on, I, I saw it from a different light, and I want to talk about that now." Because I, it's, well, and I think she even said in the headline, yeah. uh, "I never do this, but I'm taking back my first review." And I was like, "Yeah, that's pretty rare." Well, God yeah. bless that critic for for doing that. Like, you don't see that very often. Yeah, um, I mean, what's interesting. I mean, when it, when it comes to that, like it was she, I, I didn't, I don't think I got to read that one. It did. She was was her initial review just based on the pilot. I forget how many episodes we got initially. I think it was three. Okay. And and I, I don't think she had hated it. I think she just did the thing of which you know not a lot of people did, but certainly a group of people did because there were a lot of people that liked it right from the beginning. But then there was a group that was saying. These are really miserable people. Why? And then some people thought it was wealth porn. Some people thought like, why do I want to see more rich white people? Yeah. And then I think people started getting like, oh, this is a critique. Oh, this is a different direction. And then once all that started becoming apparent, then you saw like this tide change, like that site, The Ringer. I remember like yeah. Bill Simmons and all his people suddenly <laughs> were like completely on board. Like, um, they come on and they come on strong at The Ringer. Oh yes. my God. Fun, yeah. oh, it's, yeah. their, it's, their, it's their thing. They don't hesitate. So it was fun to see that swing happen. And uh, I still think there's more swinging to be had because I still think there's a little group that just from the first couple episodes thought, oh, it's kind of dry with classical music and the people are jerks. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we're really excited to see, especially because we're seeing the second season and it's already very exciting to see more and more people kind of jump into this world that, that Jesse's created. Uh, it's going to be cool to see how it just keeps going. Well, in terms of that, in terms of the second season a little bit, I mean, honestly, one of the things that, that I feel like will be a, a, a running comparison or at least a talking point is the idea that, like, right in the... They had that um, HBO reel they released last night, which oh, yeah. had, like, highlights from a bunch of the shows that Succession was in there, and it was Brian Cox saying, you know, we want to be the biggest media conglomerate, the best number one media conglomerate in the world. And this is happening as, you know, things like HBO gets swept up by Warner Media, as Disney acquires Fox. So we're seeing a lot of these things happen in real time, and now we've got a show within one of the media conglomerates kind of talking about it as itself. Do you think that's going to help the conversation around the show? Do you think that's going to lend it anything in season two? I mean, I, I, I think it's the strength of the show. I think, you know, first and foremost, you have these amazing characters that have been written that are funny and vulnerable and it's a family drama like that's the base of it for sure but the whole dynamic of their business and consolidation of power and what is the bias in the media and monopolies versus duopolies I mean it's not just happening in media it's happening in every industry in America right now and, and really across the world so I, I my dream would be to see it get to a point where it's you almost have to reference like HBO in the show. Right? <laughs> of course, we won't right. do that. No, no, no. But, like, where, where it gets that close to like the actual reality that like you almost want to see a real character from the real world walk across, or you're half expecting Jeremy Strong to just turn and look directly into the camera after a specific <laughs> line. Like, yes, we are talking about that. Yeah. 
or just to annoy the big corporations, we'll just keep talking about antitrust laws and anti-monopoly laws, like in great detail, explaining yeah. where they came from, explaining how they work. Well, it's so interesting, too, because like plenty of shows are kind of embraced by their targets at times. Like Veep is one of those shows where you hear all the politicians talk about how they're, much they love Veep, and it's their favorite show. And like they always think they're talking about somebody else when you know a lot of the times they're talking about that person who loves it. And, um, you know, there's a lot of Veep writers on the staff of Succession, which is exciting, and, and I feel like it's going to run that same gamut where people who, you know, kind of might be part of these uh, this Roy family powerhouse could watch it and be like, oh, this is fantastic. I, I'm, I'm a little oblivious to what they're critiquing, but I'm interested for some reason. So I've heard some stories. I mean, I've heard stories about some family members from powerful families that have watched it and have said... Well, that's not about us, right? And then the other person in the room is going, no, 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 no. Oh, well, that, like, we got to get you in a room with those people and have that conversation. <laughs> that would be fun. I won't give away any specifics because obviously the people that told me these sure. couple stories, uh, you know, didn't want it to be relayed in specifics. But I, I have heard a couple of stories. I mean, it sort of reminds me of Anchorman when we put Anchorman out. Very, very different movie. Very different tone. But every Anchorman in America thought we were making fun of the Anchorman next to them. Yeah. And uh, and I think that is, yeah, clearly going on with this. You're starting to hear it a little bit more. That's good. It means you're right on target. It means yeah. you're hitting right where you need to if they're thinking, like, yeah, 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 you're getting it exactly right. It's just not me. Rupert Murdoch okay. has to go, right? <laughs> I mean, he has God, to. I would hope so. I mean, come on. I would, like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I feel yeah. like, I mean, like, I, I, for, there was a time when I was like, God, I feel like there's so many Hollywood satires that are so embraced lovingly by Hollywood. And I was like trying to figure out why that was. And it was because the, my, my, the theory I've come up with is that, you know, it's, oh, we're not as bad as that. Yeah. Like, and I feel like that's, you know, it, it falls in that similar category. Of, Have you ever seen a movie called The TV Set? The yes, with David Duchovny and Sigourney Weaver. It's a lost little gem. Yeah. I think it's Jake oh. Kasdan directed it, right? Yeah. No, and I actually bought it on DVD. It's like the la- one of the last DVDs I've purchased <laughs> in eaten like years. But it's yeah. hard to track down because it's not it wasn't streaming. Anywhere, yeah, it, so I was, was trying to, to find it. Yeah, so, but like, yeah, it, it is definitely a movie that like more people should see because it is so scarily dead on. And for anyone who doesn't know, it's it's basically loosely based on Jake's first one or two experiences going through network television. So it's a satire on network television, but it's so real having had a couple experiences as a producer in network TV, I can tell you it's so spot on. But the funny thing was I heard that the networks themselves started screening it for their employees like, let's not become this. And <laughs> oh, wow. you're like, too late you've already you've already evolved past that like god Scorny Weaver is so scary oh, in that movie oh yeah. yeah I gotta rewatch it I think I saw it when it came out I gotta, I gotta see how that's holding up yeah, I, it's been a I bet you're pretty darn great yeah oh yeah no it, 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 at least I think I watched it within the last year definitely okay yeah not but yeah, I feel like uh, we got. I don't know if we're off on a complete tangent, but I, yeah. I had a, I had one thought that you know we were talking about like the idea that people are like these you know these stories about financial dealings are so much more out there, and I'm just uh, the thing that just comes to mind is the fact that I mean I follow a lot of TV writers on Twitter, and I feel like I have gotten a vast education in a number of issues surrounding like you know like everything everything regarding the ATA spat and the idea of packaging like. I feel like I feel like a lot of us are in this place now, just understanding to what degree things behind the scenes have been happening. 
Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's true. I, I, I feels to me like there's a bit of a larger cultural moment where the de- we've been getting played by the details, and I include all of us in this. We've been getting worked over by the bureaucracy, by the boring details for so long. Right. Uh, that really, in some ways, it, it becomes the answer. I mean, you know, I was telling someone, I said, with the packaging deals, if you had told me about that like three or four years ago, I'm sure my eyes would have glazed over. I'm sure I would have just been like, wait, what? You're talking about... And then you read it today and you're like, holy moly, I can't believe that's going on. And then you you hear about like big, you know, banks coming in with large finance, with the talent agencies, and all of a sudden this thing starts to take on a scope that starts to feel like a lot of other stories. And time and time again, you're just seeing that with these stories, that the, it's the details, it's the parts that seem boring, it's the part that I certainly ignored for many years, turns out to kind of be the key to it. Um, and I think you, you'll see it in season two, especially with Succession. They get into a lot more of that, about those legal details and the jockeying for power and the legal moves of having a board and how the votes work and procedural stuff. I mean, you know, you're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars that, that gets moved around based on these obscure procedural laws about corporations. And uh, and Jesse's very good at like at framing that stuff and painting it in a way that's also funny. So um, I, I'm excited about that part of the show for sure. Although the way I just described it sounds like the most boring thing imaginable. Well, you did start it by saying, you know, if you talk to me about this stuff, my eyes are going <laughs> to um, But no, I, I, I feel by after season one, we can trust Jesse to find ways oh, in. Yeah, that'll, yeah. that'll hook people And that well. staff of his is so good, man. Oh my yeah. God. Yeah, Everyone no, I... I'm, what, I, mean, like, I mean, like, Veep got so much mileage out of the... Uh, you know, basically, like when the, the when the electoral college ends in a tie in those seasons, and it's just like it's like the most mundane aspects of you know you know constitutional law, and it's like the major focal point of a comedy series. Exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, you, when you find a way to bring them to light, you know, to to put them into a, a a situation in which you know something active has to happen, where somebody has to do something, then they kind of become pretty engrossing yeah. and pertinent so yeah West Wing also like going a very different show but West Wing would often like find like a, a, a moment of comedy and just like yeah that's something that's literally in the law book like yeah. we literally have to do this thing um, because that it doesn't count I even feel like the vintage early years of uh, Law and Order had some of that yeah there was procedural talk and like the, the conversations from the DAs with the police officers can they try like there was some years of that show where they got into that stuff and I feel like those were the best years. Yeah. Yeah. The Jerry Orbach years, I'll just call them that. Right. <laughs> that's how they're that's how they're best known. Well, yeah. I think we have to start wrapping up a little bit, but um, before we before we duck out, I just wanted to ask you you've teased a little bit about season two already. Is there anything else you want viewers to kind of anticipate? Is there any sort of buzz you want to build around the upcoming season or just kind of let it be? Well, I mean, I, I think it's, once again, I'm in a great position as an EP where I get to participate and also watch. And I just know coming off the end of the first season, and I don't think I'm wrecking anything by saying this for people who haven't watched the first season, uh, the big question was what is going to happen to Kendall? Mm -hmm. And uh, the one other thing I'll say is, oh my God, the acting that Jeremy Strong is doing as Kendall in the second season. I mean, I've watched three episodes so far, and he's already twice. I've like teared up watching mm-hmm. scenes with him. I mean, he is just one of the great actors out there. Um, 
So yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing to look forward to in the second season is now everyone is like, we really know these characters. And I feel like it's allowing Jesse Armstrong and his writing staff and the, the filmmakers to, to juggle them in an even more interesting way. We were talking about how, in a way, Game of Thrones kind of had that happen with it, where if you look at the first couple episodes of Game of Thrones, it's not like the dialogue is like sparkling. It's not like the performances are like, oh my God. Like, if anything, I remember the first couple episodes almost looking ridiculous. Like, they're dragons and nude sex scenes, and you're like, what is this? But then once they got all those characters up in the air and they had like the 35 characters that they were juggling and then they were kind of masters at that of when to go to this one, when to go to this, when to harmonize these two, when to have these two meet. And by no means am I saying Succession has that kind of scope to it or or that array of characters, but you're starting to see a little bit more of that happen in the second season where we know these people now. There's a depth to the world that you can kind of play around with in interesting ways. So I think that's going to be an exciting new uh, addition to the second season. And then I think you saw it in the HBO clip when he says we're going to be the number one media company in the world. There is like a naked drive of ambition to the second season that was certainly there in the first, but is way enhanced in the second. That's really exciting. And, and Brian Cox just has some incredible moments as the patriarch of the family getting to kind of push for this. Uh, oh my God, there's a couple scenes I'm already thinking of. They're so good, yeah. <laughs> I mean, where, do, where does that emphasis on the naked ambition come from, do you think? From the character of Logan? Yeah. I mean, that there's a great moment. I can't remember the episode number. I'm going to guess and say it's episode six of the first season where they did a retreat down in New Mexico at Connor, the older son's place, Yeah. where you saw Logan get out of the pool and he had scars on his back. And I think that's a key moment. And they hint at the way he was brought up mm. with his brother who's played by James Cromwell. And like you, you see hints and flashes of this tough kind of big fisted world that he comes from. And that's another thing I'm really looking forward to just to keep getting pieces of that dark world that he came from and what was going on. And, I mean, you look at Fred Trump with Donald Trump and the you know the stories of abuse, and mm-hmm. you look at Donald Trump with his son. Isn't the story that he like hit one of his sons at University of Penn in front of his friends? Like there's like a, he slammed like those stories like he slammed Donald Jr.'s head into like a wall or something. And I've heard from other people that that's true, and he yelled at them in front of their friends a lot and mm-hmm. humiliated them. And once again, this show was created before Donald Trump was president, so. But there's definitely that kind of dark thing going behind Logan that's, I mean, he really is like a predator. I mean, he's like a beast. Uh, it reminds me of like the cook, the thief, the wife, and her lover, the oh, wow. old, old Greenaway movie. Like, uh, he's got that kind of darkness to him. But um, yeah, yeah, it's going to be uh, already, uh, I can say, from the three episodes I've seen and part of even four, uh, I just can't wait. Mm-hmm. We're looking forward to it for sure. Yeah. Um, I yeah. Season one was a delight, and uh, I think season two has been set up to be pretty uh, pretty perfect for the time. So, yeah. um, Liz, with that, what yeah. was the best thing you watched last week? Well, besides rewatching Succession um, to you know bone up for this, uh, which was of course a treat. Uh, I'd forgotten how much I love anything that Matthew McFadden does in that show on screen. <laughs> um, Beyond that, uh, I also watched a number of episodes of uh, Sci-Fi's Magicians, which had a very up and down, very very 
tumultuous season four that just wrapped up. I'm still finished working my way through season four, but that's a weird ass show, and yet they have a lot of fun. So it was appreci- it was appreciated. Uh, uh, Mr. McKay, what was the best thing you watched last week? Does it have to be TV or could it be a movie? It could be a movie. Okay. Sure. Um, I would say my wife and I had somehow never watched the John Huston movie Asphalt Jungle. Oh. And we watched Asphalt Jungle and it was incredible. And just these actors showing up everywhere in it. And I love how hard bitten and just naked and nihilistic it was. And, uh, What's that famous actor's name? Sterling Hayden. Oh, yeah. Dropping dead in the field with the horses around him in the end. I, I may be ruining this for some people. <laughs> too bad. So we just we just had the best time watching that. It's fun when you have those movies that somehow you've missed. Um, and then I would say for what I'm looking forward to, we just got the Criterion channel. Oh, uh, great. So we <laughs> just set it up yesterday, and we are going to dive into that like a hot bath I can't wait so that's definitely the one I'm excited about now and then of course I'm watching Game of Thrones because I've, I've been with it the whole time and yeah, so you gotta say goodbye you yeah. gotta say goodbye yeah. you're a human being on the planet <laughs> TV like we're gonna watch we're gonna be watching Game of Thrones yeah so. absolutely yeah. Yeah. Um, so Ben, what's the next uh, best thing next thing for you? Um, the best thing is gonna I'm just gonna stick with the what I've been seeing the last few weeks and go with Veep and Better Things. I think those are the best two shows on TV right now. Um, very very different shows, but um, both just just utterly engrossing in their own right. And um, I love what Pamela Adlon is doing both inside and outside of her show, on screen and off. She's she's really creating some great stuff within the industry that uh, I think is inspiring in the show itself. Um, has such a distinct voice to it, and she kind of maneuvers through a lot of these vignette stories, um, storytelling methods that, that just resonate very, very strongly with me. But um, in terms of what's next, uh, I am just going to say, I think, yeah, the embargo will be up, so I'm going to say uh, Tuca and Birdie is what I'm looking forward to finishing, because I've started the new Netflix original series from Lisa Hanawalt, um, which has Ali Wong and... Um, Tiffany Haddish as the voices of two best bird friends uh, living in a a bird world and it's magnificent. It's one of the most creative shows I've seen in a long, long time. I'm going to watch this. I like this. It's it's very, very funny. Very, very different. They come up with great ways to kind of illustrate certain things that you can that a lot of other shows either by um just by the way they're presented, like, or, or by the way they have to tell their stories, have to go through with like very basic dialogue, we're just going to tell you this, and they find a way to use that dialogue and illustrate different aspects of it, so it kind of, kind of becomes like a pop-up video as you're going through it, because there's so many different things that you have to pay attention to. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I love Tuga and Bernie, so I'm looking forward to, to that as well. Yeah, I've seen, I've th- I think I've seen at least four episodes of Tuga, and like, it, you've never seen a, a show that has so much voice Ooh. like it's really her, her voice really comes out as a creator and the voice cast is great uh and What's next for you Liz what next for me well uh I was gonna say I'm gonna say uh, I'm gonna shout out because I think the embargo will be up on this as well uh, I'm looking forward to digging in with Amazon's upcoming uh drama The Boys which is a superhero show with uh <clears throat> With some edge and some some dark material, and yet I feel like I, I feel like I, I feel like it's going to be one that like because it's not tied to any brand and it really is just going to be all out there. Like I think it's going to be cool. You know, I developed that as a movie. Really? Yeah. I like had no about idea. Five years ago, six years ago, I took it to everyone in town. I was doing it with Neil Moritz, 
and every single place in town was like, no, thank you. Uh, it was oh, right, it was probably a couple years before you started seeing Deadpool and Logan, and now obviously you can do rated R superheroes, or it was like a couple years before that, but I, I'm very excited to see that as well. I can't wait. You're, you're, you know, no hard feelings? Oh, no, just... no, no, no. That's good. That's wonderful. The way it goes, yeah. Yeah, if anything, the studios rejecting that idea makes me more excited for this series. It's like, okay, good. There, it really does have some edge. It really does have something like you I know, mean, the comics to go for. It, so. Crazy. I mean, the comic <laughs> right, has right. edge on edge on edge. <laughs> so we'll we'll see how much they did with the show. I'll be super curious. Yeah, absolutely. And you'll be able to read all about that and more on IndieWire.com, where you'll find news, reviews, interviews, features, all the stuff you like. Uh, and please listen to IndieWire's other podcasts, including um, the Screen Talk podcast with Eric Cohen and Ann Thompson. Uh, as well as the great, the perfect, the wonderful Chris O'Faltz Filmmaker Toolkit podcast. Yes. Um, Mr. McKay, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having us in your home. You have many exciting guitars. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, you can be found on Twitter at Ghost Panther, uh, which is a great great username. (laughs) Good handle. People ask me where it came from, and I'm like, it's literally gibberish. It was like someone else had A. McKay. So I combined two words, and, and now I've been with it for 10 years. So. Wait, you so just know go- somebody's clamoring for Ghost Panther. So. Well, Marvel is now doing a thing called Ghost Panther. So I was playing <laughs> around with like an LLC for Ghost Panther. They're like, you can't do it. Marvel now has a character called Ghost Panther. Oh, wow. So the, okay. the random joke became a reality. Yeah. God, God bless them. They're well, probably also- going to come knocking for that pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, ooh. Oh, my gosh. Oh. I, I was... For for so long, I I've been thinking that the cologne in Anchorman was Ghost Panther, but it's Sex Panther. Sex Panther. Yes. So, which would also be a good username, and probably is taken. It's so that funny. Was, I didn't even got sniped up pretty quick. Yeah. I didn't even think of Sex Panther when I said Ghost Panther, but I realized maybe some people think it's a play off of that. But no, no I just thought the idea of a of a panther that's a ghost, a shade. I was like, that's kind of badass and idiotic. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely their dream. They want to be hidden so that they can, you know, prey on people. Right? Yeah. Be right. So and they die. The they die, and maybe they come back and they haunt. <laughs> <laughs> now we're getting very dark. Yes. But, uh, but yeah, we'll spread the word so that they don't have any more mistakes about where yeah. it came from. And thanks again for joining us. Yeah. yeah. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, you guys. Of course. Um, you can find Ben on Twitter at Ben T. Travers. And you can find Liz on Twitter at Lizlet. That's with an I and then an E. Thank you, and yes, uh, thank you so much, uh, Adam McKay, for being here. Thank you so much uh, to you, gentle listener at home, for listening. And we will be back next week. And in the meantime, you guys, keep watching television. Catchphrase. I like it.